The following podcast contains explicit language. Hey, we're going to start the podcast in a second. Uh, I, I just want to say that Glenn Phillips' new album, uh, Swallowed by the New, is out imminently. And uh, go to iTunes and pre-order that thing or go to Spotify and, and, and find it. It's a great album. And stick around. At the end of the podcast, Glenn gives us an exclusive acoustic performance of a song off the great new record. All right, here we go. Podcast with Glenn Phillips starting now. Hey, this is the moment. I'm Brian Koppelman. Thanks for listening. My guest today is Glenn Phillips, who you might know from his band, Toad the Wet Sprocket. Glenn's the lead singer and songwriter, although who writes those songs with the band. Uh, he's also made a bunch of solo albums. But um, so, Glenn, welcome. Hi. He has a new solo album out called Swallowed by the New. But, uh, dude, this is weird. Being interviewed, yeah, just stand, sitting, the idea of being interviewed by you is... I, I, yeah, I was trying to think about it as I was walking over here, because I don't know, like, um, I was thinking about this, like, I've, I've interviewed Levine, but that's, you know, because I'm uh, who, who I'm with every day, and, and McDermott, and Havy, and a few of my... But you and I have been sort of like family to one another since i was 21 years old mm -hmm. and you were how old in 1989 89 i was 18 yeah yeah and i'm i was trying to remember if we met in 88 or might have been 88 might have been 89 so i was 22 was, or 23 yeah i was 17 or 18 <laughs> and um and although we've lived on opposite sides of the of the country somehow from like when we met we've never not been in touch i was thinking there was like a one year period during Fear, when your album Fear, when you were just on the road and there was no internet, and I remember we caught up after about a year, you were playing a show in Santa Barbara or something, and I came out and we ended up hanging out. And then certainly since then, again, have never not been regularly in each other's. Mm -hmm. It's been a while. I've dropped off the map a time or two. But. Well, yeah, and I was going to say, and I know that in the, I know that during the beginning of the billions, the, like billions thing, it's been that. Yeah. But you know, no one else in the who's I've talked to here has like spent more nights other than my wife Amy in my apartment than sleeping under the calder than you have because <laughs> on most tours, I just want to. So there's so much I want to talk to you about. We've had so many of these conversations, but you know, since early on in the Toad days. Often when you come through New York, you crash on my couch and sort of, I think you've been in, I think you've slept in every apartment I've lived in, in New York City. I, I believe I have, like from the old, like white and black like, yeah. bachelor. Well, thing. because yeah, the first apartment in 89 on 4th Avenue, you definitely did. And then everyone since then. So mm -hmm. now I'm excited now that Sammy's moved out, that the, the orange room might actually be available. I no, the couch will still work for you fine. I think that'll Damn be, the couch, <laughs> be <laughs> the couch will be just fine. Anything but the arrow bed. So that said, um, I'm so glad that you're here. And, uh, you know, listening to your new album, uh, often you've played me songs along the way on pretty much all the albums I've heard songs along the way. And, and this is the first time that I just heard a whole batch of songs finished, I think, except maybe w one other time ever. Mm. And the experience of listening to this album was sort of harrowing. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> good. <laughs> yeah. Well, you said to me in the other room that it was intended that, that you, this is the first time in a long while you'd made an album with a true purpose. Mm-hmm. And 
you know, to me, when I, when I hear it, it's like a clarion call for living in the present, despite an awareness of the specter of death. And knowing you as I do, that's also the clarion call of your own existence. So how's all that going? Uh, <laughs> how is that going? Uh, these days, better, better than ever. I mean, it's been a crazy few years, right? I, uh, my marriage ended. I've been with Laurel for about as long as I've known you, right? It was exactly at the same time. Yeah. Uh, and so that was, you know, a 25 year, uh, relationship. And I, and so the, you know, kind of major changes, uh, two kids, you know, leaving home, um, you know, of course. And the third kid being at home during all this. Yeah. And, uh, Major changes in kind of self-definition. I mean, you know, the last many years, it's been, you know, I go out, I work, I have this, you know, identity as as um, homemaker, provider, all these things that are very different now. And so there was a lot of catastrophic change, I guess, uh, that was really due. And I mean, and even a year and just kind of going from, you know, r- resentment about what had changed and what I'd lost into, you know, I think the beginning point was just, you know, getting that the end of the marriage was an act of love that, you know, I think Laurel had had the wisdom to know it was not serving us anymore. And it took me about a year of kicking and screaming to finally get how profound that was and thank her for it. Know that I would have chosen to kind of sit in that state indefinitely and she had the guts to, you know, kind of take apart this entire life we'd built together and allow each of us to actually be who we really are. I mean, there's just ways in which we hadn't served each other in a really long time, much as we loved each other. Um, well, this- so it took a lot of doing. And there's there's so many bad examples. It took a lot of protecting myself from other recently divorced men um, and their attitudes and even shielding myself. I mean, you've dealt with me over the years. I can get, I've, you know, I'm a, I have a depressive streak a mile wide and I got very quiet. I got very introspective and realized, you know, I had, I think major choices, you know, it kind of came down to, I was either going to need to learn to love my new life and really show up probably for the first time ever, or I was going to be completely fucked. <laughs> and there, yeah. there kind of wasn't an in-between, you know? Sure. So well, you're, yeah, I was thinking walking over here through Central Park about how to have this conversation. And I just decided on the completely directly because when I listen to this album and I see the way that this has surfaced in your work, it is important to talk about the fact that in many ways, you know, when I say that it's harrowing, man, like you and Laurel together, for those of us in the world who knew you and Laurel mm-hmm. and your family and the way you raised the girls, you, as I know Amy and I are for certain people, work like a constant inspiration in a way because you guys never, it felt like you never were going to give up and that you would together fight through whatever the stuff was. Because you were true, you approached your marriage from the beginning as like true equals and combatants in the same war together. 
Yeah, but I also think there's a part of relationship that it's like Dan Savage says this all the time. Like if, you know, people have this idea that the only measure of the success of a relationship is it lasts till one of you dies and <laughs> that, that there are other measures of success. And I think for us to realize both as parents, as people who stood by each other, as encouraged each other, loved each other. I mean, we did that fighting. But there was also a point at which the amount of work it took for us, uh, the places we didn't meet, like the foundational places where we could not bolster each other and we couldn't do it individually, I think at some point those needed to be claimed. And also really different spiritual journeys moved in very different directions. And at some point, I think partnership, there's some mutual understanding of the fabric of the universe that it really helps to be shared by a couple. Yeah. And... I think we each really respect the fabric of each other's universe, but it's... But ultimately different. It's really different. And and you want, when you're waking up, I mean, there are enough differences, you know, from person to person. Like, you want that person right next to you to be waking up in the same universe you want. Well, so you the, give each other a I mean, part strength. of it is the fact that when I say you two were combatants in the same war... What I mean is that neither of you allowed space for bullshit. There's a a fight for authenticity that each of you and not authenticity in some bogus way where it's a stance. It's like each of you and it's in your work and in the way Laurel lives her life, which is mm -hmm. a, a, a constant checking in of, am I being the truest version of myself? Am I reflecting the truest way in which I yeah. see the world? Yeah. I mean, it's living with integrity. And there was a point at which as a couple, our integrity was compromised when we were a couple. And, right. and the way to free us, to free both of us. And I'm thick headed. There's just stuff I could not have learned in that context. And there's, you know, I think same for her. So yeah, I was listening to today to a, uh, you know, a song of yours that you know is one of my favorites, a song you wrote with uh, WPA Works, for, what's it called? Works Progress? Works Progress Administration. So, administration, which is a band you had with Sarah Watkins and Ben Montench and uh, wh who's the other dude? Oh, uh, Greg Leese and Pete Thomas. And oh, yeah. um, the legendary Pete Thomas. Oh, yes. And, <laughs> um, and the legendary Ben Montench. And, uh, but you know, there's a song always, Have My Love. Mm -hmm. and that you wrote during a time that you were fighting to keep it together. And I have I feel like that song, I was thinking about Shoot Out the Lights today uh, and the Richard and Linda Thompson album, and I was thinking that Always Have My Love is, for, to me, the most honest, artful, you know, people can, the, the, the incredible thing to me about your music, Glenn, and I, and I think that your, the, your melodiousness cuts against you uh, in terms of people understanding what it is that you do, but... The bracing honesty in your music has, in your lyrics, has always been astonishing to me. And, and the fact that it's so artful and so tuneful, you know, and it's not jagged generally, I think makes it hard sometimes for folks to like take the time to get that. But I hear always have my love and as like the most bracingly honest song about what it takes to rededicate yourself to the idea of uh remembering thank you um and it also is like the entrance to the end yeah in some ways it is right <laughs> i mean and i guess what i'm going to ask you as an artist is how do you think about the choice to express yourself 
that blatantly. Yeah. I mean, one of the many things that made Laurel an incredible partner and still makes her an incredible person, I mean, is once again, that call to integrity. And I would write songs. And I remember with that one, there were earlier versions where I would come in and she would listen and she we would get to the second or third verse. And I would have started with something really honest and brutal. And then I would kind of like start thinking like, oh, I got to make you feel better. This. I can't do yeah. And I would kind of backpedal and soothe. And she would hear a song like that and would say like, you're trying to make me feel better. Like, don't. And she routinely encouraged me not to make her feel better. And that the songs needed to be real. They needed to be totally honest. And I mean, it's an odd thing when you're writing songs, like th that degree, and you go through the same thing, right? There's a fictionalization. It's all aspects of yourself. Every character you have is some aspect. And then people are going to say like, okay, is, you know, it's like, they can look at any, I'm looking up at, you know, Giamatti and thinking of him getting peed on and thinking like, so is that something Brian like, you know, it's like people can poke when you do a song, it's like right. people really, it happens not to be, but no judgment. I, I know, <laughs> thing, but, no judgment. but, yeah. but meaning you could pick any part and go, okay, so which of this yeah. is personal? Which of this is you? Which of this is you? And yeah, you don't know care. sometimes, like you're looking at the, we're in my, uh, my office where there are a lot of the posters on the wall and there's a solitary man. Like I didn't realize till months in that I'd given the main character my initials. <laughs> and someone <laughs> told me that. It's like, we don't know. But so, yeah. Yeah. And so you're, you're fictionalizing. And the weird thing about a song, I mean, I get scared to death of writing prose because I always felt like prose has to be correct. Like you actually have to stand by your thesis. You have to explain your thesis. It just scares the living shit out of me. Like writing just to me, the, the great thing about a song is it, it doesn't, it can be self-contradictory. I mean, because the human emotion is ambivalent, right? There's, you can contradict yourself. You can have feelings that are sure. nothing like each other. They can just bump in the air because that's how we feel in a given moment. And all you can really do in a three minute pop song essentially is try to, elicit one real human experience. And so it doesn't have to be right. It doesn't have to be proper and everything is mildly fictionalized. And so there's this weird thing of, you know, even in, in the song, I always have my love. It's like, well, there's parts that are absolutely that relationship. And there are parts that are, it's making the song work. And like, you go, what's this moment, you know, uh, songs get reflected back on their writers, I think, with much more of a, a an in, this intensity of the the interpretation of them as being uh, memoirs. Well, especially <laughs> though when there's a body of work, right? Mm -hmm. When there's a body of work and it has through lines. Yeah, like I was thinking about Bread and Circus, your first album today, the first album you made with Toad, mm -hmm. and you know the very first song on that very first album is about a funeral and about phoniness at a funeral mm -hmm. and about what it means to be standing there and grappling with the feelings you may have about the deceased and the way other people are looking at that person. And we're 25 years later and you're writing an album about death, life, <laughs> things breaking apart, yeah. who we are standing there observing it and being inside of yeah. it. So it's, it isn't a, a big leap for the listener to go from that first album with songs like Way Away and Know Me and all that stuff to this album with songs like uh, Criminal Career, Amnesty, Grief and Praise, Held Up, which is, I, uh, I can't wait for people to hear that, that song. Um, and it's hard not to connect this to a personal journey you're on. 
Yeah, it definitely. I mean, this is a divorce is. album and it, a life album and an, and an album about looking at yourself with the same withering eye you looked at other people living dual lives at different points mm-hmm. and taking there's a tremendous amount of responsibility taking on this album too. yeah it, well and that was the period i originally it was like i was not going to write a breakup album i was complete dead well, you set failed <laughs> uh, no i i totally failed what happened was the uh matt the electrician he's this uh, songwriter in texas and he had a songwriting group uh and my friend natalia zuckerman brought me into it and he would send out an email with titles. And, you know, it's like the old Bob Schneider I don't know how game. it works. How's it work? He sends out an email. He would just, like, go through the dictionary and put together two words like leaving Old Town or my criminal career or held up. And the other one was uh, reconstructing the diary. All of those were from this game. And he would just send out. There were, like, 17, 18 of us on this email list. And the next Wednesday, we would have to have a song. How so, would you share the song? I uh, send it an email, just you know, record it on your phone and send it in an and email. And you would all send it to all yeah, eighteen. So you'd get eighteen songs on a Wednesday. Yeah. And would you listen to all? Was the job to listen to them? No, the job was to write them and have people to be responsible to. And I would, would people to give some. feedback? Really would good. people give feedback? Once in a rare while, really. And I listened to some. I think much more. The idea was just to write and to have some prompt to get you out of your own head. And the thing was, I wasn't writing breakup songs. And then I had reconstructing the diary, which in certain ways it's like the most whiny. There's a certain. It's thing. not whiny at all. I mean, that song is so. It's not whiny, but it's kind of fay or a coy. I don't know. No, it it's like a Sinatra song. It's like you're. I mean, to me, it's like. Um, I don't know. I read that one as a song to your kids and as a song about the ways in which we retell ourselves the story, but with an acknowledgement that uh, there's a lot buried underneath there that we sweep on. I had had total writer's block. I wasn't going to write a breakup record. And then I had the, the title came in and I went into the, at that point I was like sleeping in my studio was in the garage at the old house. Hadn't left the house yet. And Got up, picked up a ukulele, like wrote that in an hour. And Laurel came in to, you know, to say hi, see what our pickup schedule was with the girls. And I'm like, I wrote a song again. And I played it for it stupidly. And I just remember this look of like sadness and horror on her face. And I thought, but I wrote a song. (laughs) And so, um, but those beginning songs, and it's interesting because I feel like also like Criminal Career, Leaving Old Town, like those were really the songs that cracked it that made me realize I could not avoid uh, the material. And I mean, leaving old town is very much like the, the musical theater version of the story. And as the writing progressed, I mean, the very last song was grief and praise. Uh, But, you know, as the writing progressed, it got much more less in this breakup territory. There's only those handful of songs that are really relational and, the rest of it, you're right. It kind of came down to death. And in that in that year, I mean, because I've been doing, there are lots of ways to practice dying. And What does that mean? Uh, meaning, uh, I mean, we can have catastrophic change in our life. Uh, uh, you can do it through kinds of meditation. You can do it through psychedelics. Uh, I mean, and there's... And I feel like a lot of the work that I've been doing, the shorthand for it would be practicing death and letting letting parts of myself go. And, uh, you know, the writers that kind of came out, books people gave to me in that time, there was Mar- Martin Prechtel who wrote The uh, Smell of Rain on Dust, which 
Oh, I've never read that. It's where there's a, a talk he gave that you can find on YouTube called Grief and Praise. And it's this Mayan concept that grief and praise are the same word in that language. And that grief is praising, basically it's, it's love in the face of inevitable loss. Uh, grief is praising the things that you love and have lost. Praise is grieving the things you love and will lose. And sure. which is everything. <laughs> and well, yeah, as you know, you and Amy, my Amy, see, yeah. see this really similarly. And I walked around with that. And the other guy I got really into uh, is uh, uh, Stephen Jenkinson, not Stephen Jenkins. Right. Stephen Jenkinson, who's a palliative care specialist from uh, Canada. He wrote a book called Die Wise that if you look at it, I think it's because it's like white lettering on a black background. It looks like Devise. I don't know what Vise means in German. Right. It looks like a German book. It isn't. And he's a beautiful speaker. I mean, his thinking about death is really profound. I, I'm trying to think of what the best way to say it. Just to, to know that you will die, to actually know that you will die, not to necessarily accept it or like it, but to really live in the face of it without denying it, without pretending that you're going to get an out by making yourself rich enough or successful enough or famous enough or, or loved enough or any of these or numb enough, right? That you can pretend it's yeah. not going to happen, but to sit there and live ferociously in the face of your death. Well, that's the Tibetan idea, right? Yeah. Isn't it? And I it's mean, a thing, I mean, and if you have friends who've had cancer, we're at this age now where you know people and people can get different lessons out of that, but you, there's those people who walk out of a brush with death like enlivened, deeply, deeply enlivened, and more present and more ferocious. And ferocious in a loving way, right? Ferocious in a way that's joyful and that's expansive. And that, I think, you know, losing old identities, losing my security, home identity as a like, it was a crazy amount to try to put together again. It's this whole life I've made. And along with it, also got to die stories about being a victim. Right. And uh, which you are well acquainted with, with me. And, uh, I mean, you know, this idea that my depressive suffering was somehow this unique, amazing thing that nobody could ever understand. And it's allowed me to kind of tap in with a more universal suffering and with that, a more universal joy, like really seeing it as dynamic range instead of getting lost in, uh, lost in the pain part of it. I mean, one way of thinking about it, my, my girlfriend, I've been with this wonderful woman for going on 11 months now. And, uh, you know, it's this question of like, what's the God you serve? And that there's a kind of judgmental old Testament retribution and suffering, uh, oriented God that I think that I haven't always been singing about, but there's been so much, worship of pain and somehow there this redemptive quality i wanted to burn hard enough and suffer enough that i would somehow be good on the other side of it and and i've lived a life where there's been very little suffering that i did not create completely by myself what's so interesting though is that the work that then would result most of the time acknowledged it but held out a very kind of earthly hope too a joyous earthly hope as you were as you were going you know i think about your your stage presence and your sort of the way in which you communicate with your audience and it's always even when you were a boy 
there was a sort of an inviting, reassuring. I think I held that out for other people. Yeah, what was I that? I think yeah. for myself, I could not. And really, honestly, right. I thought my job, like, I thought I needed to suffer. And I couldn't see anything else to do. I don't know how to explain that. I mean, you thought you need like, to suffer for for the work to be good or to become... Just, I don't know. Like, that there was, uh, in some cosmic way, like, uh, this was just how I felt my life. Like... I, uh, but even when there you would was something in me that had to be burned song, out. <laughs> but even when you would, you know, I'm thinking of like stupid or something. Even yeah. when you would castigate yourself in song, I'm thinking of Duck and Cover, which isn't about castigating yourself, but which is about, which is about this stuff, but with this hopeful sort of almost like, uh, I guess in the past, I think there was this idea that we could willfully put the blinders on, that we could know mm-hmm. that the, it was all coming. But that that the way to live in the present was to sort of uh, was a thinner kind of joy than the thing that you're talking about now. Yeah. Once again, dynamic range. I, I feel like I had. I don't know. And it was I mean, like, you know, I'm the DC biggest toad. I mean, I, a- I was gonna say. I mean, you understand. <laughs> you know, I'm the biggest toad the West Brockett fan yeah. ever. I love those records, but and I um I've listened to them hundreds. And I of think times. they're all part of the process. I mean, and I don't. I certainly don't think I've arrived. I think I'm writing from a different point of view and i guess i'm examining and which is not to say i mean once again I, you know I, i'm i've been really fascinated with sacred music and i'm not a christian you know i like jesus energy i mean a new agey california guy i think jesus energy is amazing but i think it's a universal human story as opposed to a one time thing but like you can take a spiritual song from any spiritual background and you can be floored by it and i mean you know, there are songs that were written by people who are Christians that bring me to my knees. They're beautiful. They are profound. They are ultimate. They don't require that I also have that same view of the universe. Right. And so, and, and for you, and I know we've talked about religion a lot, like there are songs written about that that floor you too. It's like, it doesn't... Oh, well, yeah. I mean, obviously I'm an atheist, but Dylan's Christian period is one of my favorite periods of his music. Um, mm-hmm. I listen to serve somebody, and I am absolutely wrecked by it. I listen to the Infidels album, which was uh, clearly like the moment of you know uh, him on his way back and away from that journey, uh, somewhere mm-hmm. caught in between. Also, because of those melodies, somehow when he was writing that music, melody was incredibly important to him again for a period of time. Mm-hmm. But but sure, I mean, I love the staple singers too. Yeah, and, and so just saying it, like when I'm saying ah, I don't worship that God, I'm like I'm not saying the the stuff I wrote was shit. <laughs> I'm not saying it it's right. not effective or it's not good. It but like as far as you know, larger intent, right? As far as like what's what's behind this and what's feeding this. And it's weird talking so much about death on this album and this inevitability because it sounds morbid, but I also feel like, uh, you know, once again, it's this, there's an appreciation for life, there's appreciation for love, there's an appreciation for... Well, yeah, I felt like the long time on your solo records, I I felt, you know, you said something, I remember I was walking with my son through a college campus in California when he was looking for schools and when you were making the last Toad album and you'd sent me the mixes and stuff and we're talking about some of the songs and... You said something to me about how much I like Toad songs. You were like, oh, you like the really Toady, Toad the Wet Sprocky songs <laughs> more than like my songs. Which is fine. Uh, yeah, which is exactly what you said. <laughs> you were like, which is fine. Which is like if you're, you know, if, uh, but 
Um, but I think sometimes in your solo work, there were periods of time where it seemed to me you almost were willfully trying not to court the same audience, or mm -hmm. you were willfully trying to be dissonant or trying to be difficult. And probably, yeah. And on this album, I hear some of the most melodically satisfying songs you've ever written. Songs that with slightly different lyrics and with background vocals by Todd and Dean would really fit on a Toad the Wet's, like in a great Toad the Wet's Brocket album. It's like you, it, this album feels to me like you decided to take all the best tools that you have and you were like, fuck it. I'm just going to make that album. <laughs> yeah. Well, this album, once again, there was a lot I wanted to communicate. And all the subjects on it felt bigger than me. I mean, felt like when I was looking at, yeah, looking at change, looking at death, looking at the unknown, and writing from it in a less personalized view, for the most part, not all of it, but there's enough on it that is like, okay, we're at this age, you know, people die, you lose things you care about, you break up, you change, you like, and it just felt like my going through that period, these songs were such tools for me. I wanted to make them accessible tools, usable tools for somebody else and not feel like, I mean, I've always gone back and forth over feeling like this is a narcissistic project uh, process. I've always had really a lot of ambivalence about success or fame yeah. or media. I mean, and even now it's like, uh, music has been hitting me in a different way. And like the idea of like, how do I, as a person who's, I don't know if I'm atheistic or agnostic, I think like, I don't kind of care whether God exists or not. I don't believe in an old Testament God. I think personifying something to point gratitude towards is really useful. I believe in the amygdala. I believe in like, I believe in neurotransmitters and I believe in the spiritual experience. And I think it's like the most beautiful human experience. Well, that's what I get out of song. That's what I get yeah. out of music and art and movies and, and great television. Like that's when like love and kind, like I get that out of a ton mm -hmm. of different things. But you know, we've talked about Jason Isbell's album, Southeastern. Mm -hmm. And I remember you before, I guess you'd listen to it when I was just prattling on about it. You were like, motherfucker. You said it got you annoyed a little bit that I was so into it, but I then was you jealous. <laughs> but then you listen to it and like it's a really good album. Yeah, there is that stuff that's out there in the world, and I think you stepped up and like delivered one of those records. Yeah, so I, but even I, it's like the delivery of music. I mean, this is the thing: the stuff I've been thinking for fifteen years about this stuff of like how we consume music, how we go to shows. We say it's something we saw; it's not something we do. Like, how do you make music in ways that are inclusive? And it's something that the, the religious community has down. Like, you go, you sing songs together. You're focused on something larger than yourself. And those songs, I think singing in unison with people, like, charges that song so that when you're on your own and you need it, it comes back to you in a way. I mean, there's so a reason. So does that mean when Kirtan you sing Walk on the Ocean, to, you... you you still get something out of it because everybody's singing it with you? Or is it just that they're getting something that we, the audience, No, I get think to everybody sing. gets something out of there. But I think if the song itself carries greater intent, and I think if the context contains uh, a better aim, you know, once again, are you doing it in places that are selling alcohol? Are you doing it in places where it's about nostalgia, about the good old days? Like, And I'm kind of anti-nostalgic. And so what I wonder 
And I mean, the question for me is, can you do music like this that is uh, inclusive, right. inviting, well, sacred, but also not cheesy? Well, but it's amazing. Which is the this, thing but, that really scares the But it's crap amazing this me. wrestling <laughs> match that you've had with yourself for so long. Because yeah. if you look at Walk on the Ocean, it's a song about nostalgia. I mean, it's a song it's about... It's also a th- throwaway lyric I wrote in five minutes. <laughs> yeah, no, but it's not. But it isn't. <laughs> It, it seems they'd already forgotten they came. That is not uh, a thrown away lyric. That's you're still singing about that shit, dude. Yeah, I'm saying you are you are still singing about the impermanence of experience and about connections that get severed and about what we hold on to. And so I wonder why you look at those songs like that. Why you would look at a song like that as a thrown away thing when it's actually I think so much at the root of. What matters to you? Only because it only took five minutes to write. <laughs> yeah, but in your but in your sort of awareness of like all the stuff you talk about, isn't it time to even sort of like recognize that perhaps that was as true? A young artist, man, young artists can do things that take older yeah. artists. Malcolm, you and read a lot of that. There is value. There is total value in that music, and there's value in the way people get off. But I guess for me, it's thinking about venue and. The idea of reaching, I mean, I have, I think, been in the business of reaching less people more deeply for a while now. Uh, and I may double down on that at some point. I, I just, there's things about how music is delivered, how it's commodified. And I think if I, if I grew up- What have up, been the deepest musical experiences for you as a, as a receiver of it then? If you don't, if, if you're questioning the way that it's currently- Oh, as a receiver of it? It's like, I got to say, it's things like Kirtan or things. I have a friend, Lisa Gattel, who does, uh, it's like community music stuff where it's just teaching people like simple three-part harmonies, pocket songs. Like there's this song she has that is just the lyric. It's so simple. It's in desperation, we found freedom. In freedom, we found love. In love, we found devotion. In devotion, spirit found us. You sing that for like 30 times through, slow plottingly simple harmonies building and it takes you to a completely transformed space well it's like krishna song, i mean that's like krishna krishna i mean that's yeah yeah no it's like kirtan it's right I, and and so that music but the question is how do you approach music like that like i am scared shitless of it because that language spiritual language is so fraught with like cheesiness and even using a word like god like i'm trying to finally get right with using the word God myself and knowing what I mean by it, because it's not an omnipotent deity. I don't consider will behind, I can, you know, I, I just think life itself, the will of life, maybe it's fucking mitochondria that's just like sitting in our cells and using the rest of our DNA as a way to get itself around and amuse itself. Who knows? It's like, but God means what it means to me and to feel unashamed and like, not like I'm stupid, not like I'm dumbing down or anything, but actually really proud of what that word can do inside of me, what it can mean. And the, like, for me, it's this ultimate expression of awe. I love standing in front of the unknown, not pretending to know anything more about it than I actually do, which is basically nothing, and to stand in complete and utter awe of it. And that awe and that gratitude to me is the most powerful mover in my life. Like if I had been raised in a religion that had 
taught me I had to believe in something, I probably would be a priest in that religion. Like, well, that sense of, that's, that's what I've always right? come back to. That sense of gratitude has always been in your music. You've always written about the sense of, in some way you've always written about and communicated about the mm -hmm. gratitude. And I think you've added the piece of accepting the yeah. awe and the unknowing. And maybe I find that in a bigger way. Like I just recently listened to a Chris, uh, Krista Tippett interview with Joe Hardy and it's an amazing interview. He's great. Like I, and I love that he's 10 years older to me because I would like Joe to, Henry. Yeah. I would like not his, Joe Hardy. I think Joe you said Henry. Joe Hardy. Sorry. Joe, Joe Hardy. Who's, who's not Joe Hardy. Joe Henry. My, my close friend and who I yes. love is also a record <laughs> producer. But no, you mean Joe Henry, I mean the Joe record Henry. producer yes. and, and uh, songwriter. songwriter. Yeah. And he talks with a great clarity about his spiritual journey that I hope in 10 years I can aspire to. Uh, because honestly, I feel like I'm at the beginning of it. I had like, I'm two years into, I had one year where I was an open wound, really trying to reconstitute myself. And I've had this year of like realizing I'm at square one in a brand new life. And uh, it's, it's intimidating to be 45 and feel like you're a, a beginner again. So I wonder like, yeah, what, uh, what do I do with this next chapter? And my ideas of what success is or what I want to achieve, uh, it's a very, very different ground uh, than when I was young. Uh, well, well, and, even and when in you certain were, ways, not. I'm just going to say, ways, not. I mean, you know, people couldn't know they couldn't remember i mean uh, some small subset of people who are listening would remember this but <laughs> you and the guys in the band made a small album as a demo called bread and circus and then you went and made a second thing called pale and you made those both without a record without a record deal at a time when people by definition needed record deals and then an enormous bidding war ensued to sign the band this guy from Electra was well, like totally like jacking up. I had, the, I had, the, what worked out wonderfully well for me in a certain way was that because the, my bosses were like the only ones who in the end didn't want to sign the band and enabled me to be on the inside of the process and talk to you about how you were deciding between the other labels. Mm -hmm. But you guys could have taken big money at the top and you took real money. But what I remember about the deal you struck was that you guys had a plan, which was we're going to release these two small albums that aren't commercial first. You uh, insisted that the record company pay for a certain kind of touring, for a certain kind of grassroots marketing. You built a mailing list before almost anybody else had that kind of mailing list. And sort of, instead of just taking the big money and going in with a big record producer and making a, a new album, your third album, Fear, the plan was that that would be the big album. And it turned out that was the big album. But you stuck to this like slow, long process of sort of intentionally grassroots mm -hmm. career building. It doesn't seem that different to me. It was really flew in the face of what everyone else was doing. And, and it ended up working well. And it always felt really weird for me. I, I guess. What do you mean? Well, just meaning, you know, there was some. I think it was just some young quote about, you know, success early in life is, is a big problem. <laughs> it set up very unrealistic expectations. I was going to ask life. you about that. Yeah. And yeah, we were wildly successful for a little while. And I think I pretty much sabotaged it and then spent, you know, years, you know, decades with this Christ complex of, you know, that I've been thrown off the mountain doing music that was kind of guaranteeing that I would remain obscure 
Yes. And hating the world for, for my obscurity, being really pissed off about it, feeling right. really entitled. I was like, I condescend to them. Resentful. They're idiots. How come those idiots don't love me? Yeah. Uh, and I, like, I, I fucked myself really hard for that. And I guess that was the thing is when Toad, when we first went in there, I didn't expect it. I didn't think it was going to ever happen. And it actually ended up happening, which I don't know if it's good or bad. It's whatever lesson it is. I mean, it's supposed to be what you want, right? Yeah, and what, the fact why wasn't is, it what you I don't wanted? Think I, never, I don't think I wanted it. I don't think I trusted it. I don't think I trusted media. I don't think I trusted fame. I didn't trust people who were too into it. I remember I, I wrote you. A, I remember LA. writing like, you a letter. I remember seeing you perform in L.A. at some really big venue, one of the biggest shows you ever played, where it was just you between Fear and Dulcinea. And I wrote you this like long letter because I could see you were uncomfortable with it. But what you couldn't see being out in the audience was the sheer incredible joy on their faces. And it's and what was it about that? No, I sat on it the whole time. I mean, part of it was the internal nature of the band, which was really difficult. Um, part of it, I don't know. I, I mean, this is the weird question. I don't know if given my background, you know, maybe it's, you know, growing up in this, you know, it's like dual PhD parents, like, you know, you get all the education, but you're not in the 1%. You get to kind of be at the periphery. It's the sure. Santa Barbara thing of like, watching the real haves all around you and knowing you'll never be them and wanting what they have and being close enough that you can kind of, you know, grab a few appetizers off their table, but you can never join the party. Right. And then you made these records sort of mocking them in a way. <laughs> it's, it's a weird, and then they were people love, I mean, you're the most, you know, your shows in Santa Barbara would, you could sold out as many dates as you wanted. I guess it's, it's a strange, I, I still don't, Get it? And I mean, it's a weird thing. I've spent so much effort in the last few years, like looking at the now and looking at the future that I don't know if I've really necessarily gone into what my motivations were for tanking my life so deeply. And I don't know if it was just a really typical depressive, uh, <laughs> I don't know what it was. I mean, uh, you know, it, it's odd to look at. Here's I mean, if I want to think of anything karmically, like my understanding of karma, like the way it works for me is simply, if you don't learn from the shit that happened, your other, then it's wasted. So yes. at this point, I will attribute purpose to <laughs> the, the weirdness of my last years. But I've always, the idea of success, you know, it just fucked me up. Well, wasn't and part I, of it. And, and I've given up in a way that I, I'm okay with. Like, and not given up in a way, like, I feel my songs are more important than they've ever been. I feel my music and the work I'm doing is more important than it's ever been. I don't expect to get played on the radio. I don't expect, I mean, you know, I went through a divorce and found out exactly how much my catalog since the Toad singles is worth. Uh, it's not worth anything. And <laughs> it's, and so looking at that whole catalog, all those songs I've written and I have to go, okay, they're not getting, none of them got, you know, like film, TV, no placements, you know, two, I got in, uh, you know, two placements. Like it's not getting placed. It's not getting played on the radio. It's not getting written about in the major magazines. So I have to ask myself, like, is it worth it? And I also realize there's been a big change in the industry, right? That's completely say, un But people impersonal. still come to, I just want to say, people still come to see you. Yeah. Yeah. But I'm, but I mean, meaning like there are all these measures that are the external yeah, there's metrics measures out there. Yeah. And I feel more 
more convinced of the importance of what I do and what I can do for people than I ever have. And the purpose of that and separating that from any of those other symptoms, I feel like I have an understanding that it's worthwhile, no matter how few people it reaches compared to how how many people it used. I mean, because it, you know, it's like when you're budgeting an album now, like we're looking at, you know, we hope we sell 6,000 copies. It's a lot less than a million right? There aren't so many powers of 10 that one can go down anymore. And so looking at those differences in like, how many people does it reach? But like going, how deeply do I want to hit people? Like if I take on the value system that's around the music business, then I I should have quit. And if I go like, was there a purpose? Does this actually do something for people? And already like songs like Grief and Praise, like it's important that it's in the world. It's important that people hear it. And I'm going to figure out, you know, I think in the second half of my life, I'm not going to stop making music ever. I'm not going to stop creating, but I do at some point pretty soon want to slow down, not be in an album cycle, not tour so much, like really become more local, become more deeply useful to the people closer to me. Like community has been really calling me. And I mean, for years and years, I lived in Santa Barbara and I always felt like I was visiting. I always felt like I was making up for time I'd spent away from my kids and my wife. And I had to get every second with them, see my friends when I could, but I didn't feel like I fanned out into the community, like I was really useful to the people around me. And I look forward to growing deeper roots, to integrating more, to be- Where are you living now? To doing a deeper dive. Where are you living now? I go between Santa Barbara- and uh, actually Nashville right now. And and it's still the road. I mean, I got to, you know, for the next few years, uh, there are financial imperatives where I'm going to need to keep earning a little more. But it's the other thing. In a couple of years, when all my kids are out of the nest, I can live as cheap as I want to. I can have a very different life. And the idea of running away and being like kind of a desert gnome and making weirder more spiritual music, like I I can ask some of those questions about community music that I've been afraid to because I've had to be a provider and I've been afraid of making a misstep. And I made a lot of records that I feel were very compromised between on one hand, the one part of me wanting to say fuck you to commercialism and make really difficult music. And on the other hand, being desperate to earn a living as the industry was Right, so they ended up as, well, and also I think for at a certain point, if we're just being since we are being really honest, I think there was, and I think there was anger, it seems to me that, and I will say I was angry about it for you, that you weren't being written about as one of the important songwriters. And I think it bothered, there was a period of time where it really bugged you. Yeah, it did. Which is a difficult place to write I'm putting out an album this place, I can still probably let it bug me. Uh, you said what? You're putting out what? I'm putting out an album this year and I hired a publicist, so I'm sure it'll it'll bug me again. Um, but less so. It's like, I don't take it personal. I don't know why. I'm well, not this album, cool kids. if like, someone will it. just, if people will listen to it, it's really hard to figure out how to get people to listen to an album by a 45-year-old dude now, right? A yeah. 45-year-old guy who doesn't have a certain kind of story. It's hard. Another divorced middle-aged white it's, man. <laughs> it's hard to get like people to, and because your voice is still, you know, I, I wrote down for myself as I was taking notes that like almost nothing comes easily for you except singing, but singing comes so easily and the listener feels 
that this joy that, you know, whether you're, it annoys you about yourself, whatever it is, when you sing, you know, you change the room you're in and you sing with a tremendous amount of abandon and joy. And I know it's a thing that just takes you over when you do it. And for some reason, that thing gets appreciated in certain kind of church singers, but doesn't always in guys like you. Well, and it's the weird thing. Like, I'm kind of searching for my church, and I don't mean it in a... I mean, that's the odd thing. And I found music coming up in spiritual contexts more often, like, taking people to those places um, means a lot to me. Singing Icaros, singing, uh, you know, singing sacred music is uh, a profound experience but you still have a hard time letting letting others decide what's sacred right yeah that's you still have a hard time with the fact that to a bunch of us a bunch of that music that you've written is that thing and it is for me too and there's songs once again when i play and i've been playing music increasingly in in these settings and there are you know, songs from the past that were not, I mean, there's stuff I've been writing specifically for it uh, and it's not public. It's not about recording and it's not about putting out. It's, it's a different thing. And there are older songs that, you know, show up and there's things like gather and thank right. you. I don't need anything. Um, I will not uh, take these things for granted. Yeah. There are songs that, that work in those contexts. Uh, and you know, am I getting new agey or soft or whatever? I don't know, but I feel a power when I can do some of those songs. I would also point people to certain old songs like High in a Riverbed and Come Back Down that they may not know that are worth their time to hear because the roots of all the stuff you're talking about are in a bunch of those songs too. Yeah, and it's 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 always been around. It's just, I feel like it's this odd thing of I'm going in this direction that is highly spiritual but non-religious and it's just such a landmine strewn territory of like potential cheesiness but uh, yeah i don't want but but i really don't want people to think that when they get this album that it's going to be filled with a bunch of this new agey stuff it's actually much closer to a paul simon album because Mm. you are unspeak i mean you're you're really at yourself here you're taking yourself to account on this album there may be spiritual conclusions there may be look there's hope in the album held up as a church revival song but it's a rock song too but it 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 is an album that cuts that does cut deep. I find as somebody who doesn't give a fuck about spirituality in the way that uh-huh. you, in fact, I, I find that word, you know, I, I think trying to put it into the other, I think our responsibility is to be as awake and alive as we can be right here mm-hmm. without thinking it comes from somewhere else. Right. It doesn't need to come right. from somewhere else. It's everywhere. Right. I mean, and finding it in your actions and your, kindnesses to other people and yeah. all that stuff. And there's different ways. And maybe I'm getting more woo-woo as it goes along, but I'm finding the <laughs> sacred in more. And I, I'm not being... A, and it's even saying a word uh, like sacred. You know, I, I like... I, yeah. I, I... To me, saying sacred is just... It's it's another way of saying, like... Uh, things also, that are... Dude, I have to just say, you like... give gratitude Motives for. and actions like, are such separate things. I have to say, like, if I were just listening to this, I would think that you were... The way you talk about yourself is is like for all these years you've been a selfish person. You haven't been community mind. Whatever your motivations were, I mean, you've been community minded. Like, like I just want to just like knowing you. Whatever was going on in your head, or whatever motivated yeah. you, or whatever you would say to yourself, "Oh, I'm only doing this for X, Y, or Z reason." I mean, the fact is, um, you've always done a tremendous amount for like all sorts of groups and people. Less like you've. It's been a huge part of your life. Has been giving. 
I guess it's a weird. I mean, it's strange to look at. Like, yeah, what are the internal motivators? Who and cares? There was but so I'm much, saying, who cares? Right? There was so much driven by. Yeah, the need to be liked or thought of as good. No, or to think no, of the need to. to the, I mean, I think an honest. Uh, I think an honest compassion. Yeah, but I survival or self punishment or this sure. that idea of painful redemption, and I, that's the thing I reject now. Right. Uh, I mean, good. You know, and, and, and getting like, you talk about spiritual music, like the one I love to point out is, is Van Morrison and who manages to do these songs that are totally joyful. Like, this is the thing that if I can learn how to do this, he manages to do songs that are profoundly joyful and they don't have necessarily a negative word in them or a word about the darkness, but they are so clearly written as a reflection to darkness. They are written with utter awareness of how deeply a human being can suffer. Sure. I think about Unforgettable Fire and Joshua Tree in much the same yeah. way. Or David White. Do you ever read David White poetry? No. Oh, he writes about darkness brilliantly, beautifully. Uh, Chris Whitley did too, by the way. Yes. I mean, if you if people, I'll say an, an album that not enough people know is Chris Whitley's Living with the Law. But yeah, but there's something in like these moments of Van Morrison where he can manage and you look at it and you're like, he never mentions the darkness, but it is profoundly ever present. He never denies it. He never steps away from it. It is not walking on sunshine, right? It is like, it is deep as fuck. Whereas you think Bob, Bob, by definite, Bob talks directly about the darkness. Yes. Uh, sometimes. Yeah, and I think that's okay too. I talk directly. I like imply the light more than talk about it. I would like to talk about it a little more. I think it's I don't think it's weak to to be more oriented towards that. I think I'm valuing happiness more than I'm valuing pain. And once again, happiness if you talk about it not in the light way, like when Buddhists say be happy, like that means be aware, show the fuck up, be strong, be willing to suffer, you know, be present. And happiness is not cheap. Happiness is, you know, uh, happiness yes. is a uh, a practice. It's not what you get after you've done everything right. I love that. It's a great place to end on, but I just want to, <laughs> I want to just, one of the, which is one of the great things um, uh, that the two of us have gotten to do is watch the uh watch the other's kids grow up mm -hmm. uh we uh i haven't your youngest daughter i know least well because we've been in, i haven't been on the same coast as much but your oldest two daughters i fully have watched grow up and but i'm thinking about your youngest daughter freya who people who see you sometimes you'll play shows on the computer on that what's that site called oh, uh, stage it stage it and freya yeah. will sing with you sometimes and and she's all of your kids uh Sophia and Zola and Freya, they're all talented and amazing in their own ways. Uh, you know, I love them. Uh, but what do you tell Freya, who's this incredible singer? I mean, she's an incredible singer. Mm -hmm. And when she opens her mouth to sing, it's like you. Uh, because I was just thinking about this idea that the way you talked about walking the ocean, the fact that you wrote it, I, I, I wonder if the whole, I wonder if the whole difficulty for you is actually just that singing, the ease with which it comes to you, the fact that you've just always been a great singer. And I just wonder if the fact that it was so easy in a certain way, that doesn't mean writing was, was writing was hard, but singing was. And singing's been its own thing too. It's interesting. 
But if I forget I exist, singing's easy. Right. If I remember, it's really difficult. Sure. I'm sure but when that's you how writing young, works for yeah, you, right? Yes, <laughs> as soon yes. as you get the fuck out of the way. But when you were young, you could just sing, right? Because there wasn't, you weren't grappling with all this other shit. Once you open your mouth, it would, yeah, from the audience, easier. even and before with, you were, I'm saying before you were, Fred, I saw you perform before anyone knew who you were. I saw you perform in front of 40 people. Uh, your first gig in LA, your, mm-hmm. your second gig in LA, and you, your singing was that you could feel this guy having this incredible joyous release when he got to open his mouth. Yeah, it's present. I mean, there's 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 a presence, and I mean, uh, and Freya sings on the easy ones on the record, and the amazing thing, like, there is so much kindness in her voice. It's so profound the amount. She is one of the most compassionate, kind people I have ever it's, met. But, and it's beautiful. Like, I love that you can hear in her voice how, how loving she is. What do you want for is. her to get out of this voice that she, like, what do you hope this voice of hers leads her to, having now lived all of this yourself? You know, her aim, I mean, I don't know if I wish being a professional performer or artist on anyone. You know, I've talked to you about this before. Uh, the problem with making a living making art is that when it goes well, it's it's great. And when you feel secure in it, you know, if you have nothing and art is your way up and your way of surviving, then it's wonderful. If you are doing pretty well and you can afford to take big chances because there's, there's more in the bank, you know, like whether that's the, you know, social capital or whatever, like if you feel you can make some mistakes and try crazy stuff, uh, then it's very freeing. And if you're in the middle where you feel like any misstep, you'll lose everything. Like that's kind of the position I was. It's a very difficult place to be creative. Uh, and, and And so for her, I, I like that she doesn't have an ambition to be seen. She loves being on stage performing. I think she'll always do that. She loves singing but she doesn't have an ambition. And I like that because I know she'll always have music that if it works for her, I hope not to be a buzzkill with it, with her, but like if it ends up being a job for her, most of my advice will be about keeping her love for it. Uh, And not letting that confuse, like that's what I would worry. And if she doesn't try to be professional about it, then wonderful. Cause she'll always have her love for it. Like I, lost when the band broke up when i couldn't get a record deal when i felt like kind of cast out i mean that those were the years where i was going to cafe largo like twice a week driving down to la to be at largo because it's the one place where i felt like i was still valued as an artist it was really hard for me i had no place to go because music had always been my it was my refuge and once my refuge was taken away i didn't i didn't have one right i don't ever want that taken away for her uh, and she already, I mean, she, you know, her spring break this year, uh, there was this couple who'd had their kids with Laurel, Laurel's a midwife, my ex-wife, and uh, they, uh, you know, worked at, in, uh, is it Hyderabad or Hyderabad in India? Let's say Hyderabad. Uh, but she went there to, you know, work for her spring break. She wanted to go away for two and a half weeks to India to work at an orphanage for special needs kids yeah. and take care of this couple's baby who has uh, Down syndrome. And they have, you know, it's like, that's who she is. She is like the most loving, generous, beautiful, present person I've ever met. She's she's astonishing. And I think her world is going to be in service in some way. And I think music 
and the arts will be a part of that. Yeah. Uh, but I also think she will be saved some of the indignities of the music business. <laughs> sure. Let's all uh, hope that everyone can be saved from those uh, indignities. One final indignity though. Uh, would you, uh, would you play us a song here at the end sure. of this uh, thing? So people can hear may, uh, one of your songs and understand why they should go out and, and, and find your albums. You were on the road with Toad Wet Sprocket for the remainder of the summer. Uh huh. A couple more weeks and then I'll be out solo in, uh, Starting October and your website, glennphillips.com. And then Glenn, Glenn is on Twitter and on all social media. Talk about indignities. And um, what do you want to play? You want to play Criminal Career? I could do that. Yeah. Just a second. Great. So, uh, hey, Glenn, man. Thanks. Yes. And, and uh, if people want to find me, I'm uh, at Brian Koppelman on Twitter. And uh, you can email me at the moment, bk at gmail.com if you have anything. Uh, important you want to say or ask and i'll try to get back to you and, and now here's glenn playing one of my favorite songs from uh, the new album swallowed by the new and this song is called criminal career
how could we not feel the gravity of fears in my criminal career? Yeah, man. That's awesome. Thank Thanks, Glenn. Go see Glenn Phillips on tour. Go see Toad the Witch Brocken on tour. Buy his album. Stream his album. And uh, keep help keep Glenn doing this. All right, thanks.